Welcome to IRAC, a show where we identify issues, provide the rules, give an analysis, and sometimes come to a conclusion. This is an SULC podcast. Thank you for joining us this week on IRAC. I'm Arthur Williams, one of the executive producers. This week I'm joined by Miss Jessica Hawkins. What up, dog? Zachary Harrison. Hey, everyone. And Mr. Jonathan Sanji. Well, Jessica took my intro, so I guess I'll say hey. <laughs> <laughs> and Jonathan will be introducing what we're talking about this week. Thanks, Arthur. Yeah, uh, this week we're going to talk about the state of Louisiana versus Warren DeMesme. Yeah, in this case, it deals with Miranda rights and invoking the right to counsel and how that has to be unambiguous and be unequivocal. In this case, the defendant and the way they were arguing it, the way he tried to invoke counsel was with this sentence. He said, and I'm quoting the case, If y'all, this is how I feel, if y'all think I did it, I know that I didn't do it, so why don't you just give me a lawyer dog, because this is not what's up, end quote. The court ruled that this was not unambiguous and that he did not invoke his right to counsel. And so today we're going to discuss whether we agree with the court's opinion or not. I just want to say that I think it is ridiculous for the court to believe that this man was requesting for an actual dog, meaning a canine, to walk into court in a full three-piece suit and represent him. That would be adorable, though. It would be. I would want a corgi. But (laughs) that is not what was happening here. And for the court to purposely leave out that comma, I think that the court knew what it was doing in deciding this case. They They were obviously biased going in. And so the omission of that comma just made it very clear. And to give context to you viewers who haven't pulled up the case on your own. Lawyer dog is one thing. It's it's not a lawyer comma dog. They are they're referring to the dog as someone who practices law. So that is what Mr. Harrison is referring to. Uh, I also agree with Mr. Harrison. I don't believe the court was being particularly unbiased. I feel like they wanted this defendant in jail because the rule of law in Louisiana is that if you say something like might or maybe whenever you're referring to you invoking the right to speak to an attorney, they don't have to stop questioning because that's not unambiguous. He said, why don't y'all go ahead and get me a lawyer dog? Which is, I mean, I'd say that's unambiguous. I'd say he's invoking his right to an attorney. Clearly the court didn't agree, but I mean, that's just my opinion. I um, think the court itself was less frustrating to me than the officers who were in the room when this occurred. Given the type of contact that these officers would have on a day-to-day basis with people like this young man who speak Ebonics, who, I guess, not the Queen's English, but (laughs) um, according to the uh, Vera Institute of Justice, up until recently, the city of New Orleans was the longtime nationwide leader in urban jailing and urban incarceration. And even today, as the rate is slowly dropping, it is still nearly double the national average. So the city's urban population is being jailed at a pretty ridiculous rate. So I know that given this rate, these officers come into contact with people in the inner city who speak like this young man and 
their vernacular, dialect, whatever you choose to call it, is something that they've come across before. In the city of New Orleans, black men are 50% more likely than white men, and black women are 55% more likely than white women to be arrested. And that also comes from research done by the uh, Vera Institute of Justice. And it's just frustrating to me that just the mere mention of the word lawyer wasn't enough or his phrasing wasn't proper enough to get an attorney in the room or to at least stop questioning. And I feel slightly different. I like to think that I would have given this man an attorney. However, I do understand where the ambiguity kind of comes from because he didn't directly say, I want an attorney or give me an attorney. He said, so why don't you just give me a lawyer dog? Whereas just even leaving off dogs, so why don't you just give me an attorney? He isn't exactly demanding. It's kind of like posing, well, if you think, then why don't you? But also we have a statement from a case that says, maybe I should talk to a lawyer. And that was deemed not to be an unambiguous request for a lawyer. So using case law, I probably would have sided with Jessica and Jonathan, but I do think that there's definitely an argument there. I don't think that just saying the word lawyer or attorney should invoke your right to one, but I definitely don't agree with the six to one majority on this case. I also agree that the court kind of got hung up on semantics. I think the very mention of the word lawyer should have indicated to the court that this gentleman was stating he had a preference for having an attorney present versus the alternative where he would not. That's just what it seemed like to me. I mean, who am I? I'm not a Supreme Court justice or anything like that. But I I do think that he was clearly articulating, you know, that he had a preference for having an attorney there. And I also think that it's, it's one of the duties of the court to be, I guess, sensitive to various, I guess, cultural idiosyncrasies or the way people speak or think or the way they do things in a particular geographic area. And as Jessica said, you know, people understand that New Orleans has a particular dialect, just as Baton Rouge and any other place in Louisiana. You know, we have a very rich cultural history. And for something that small to kind of get swept under the rug by the court, it's a little disappointing. But looking at jurisprudence from other places, I could I can totally see how this could have happened. And just to clarify, the Supreme Court didn't actually deliver an opinion on this. Justice Creighton gave his concurrence and assigned some reasons, and that's where we're reading all of this from. So we will post a link to that in the description of this podcast so that you can find what was actually said and how it was written to give you an idea of how we are reading it and what we are reading from. I just think that As Zach was saying, the fact that this hinges on a lawyer dog... Two words. Two words. (laughs) Two words, no comma, is... It's pretty ridiculous to me, given Davis v. United States. It's a 1994 case that says an attorney must be given when it is sufficiently clear that a reasonable police officer in the same circumstances would know what this person is asking for. And again, I point to the fact that these officers come in contact with people who speak in a different way every day and should have reasonably known what he was asking for. As as with most things that are 
criminal law related, typically with the police officer, it goes a police officer. It goes back to like what would a reasonable police officer under the circumstances truly believe? And I think it'd be pretty hard to argue that a New Orleans police officer with any amount of experience at all did not know that this man was invoking his right to counsel. Like, I find it incredibly hard to believe that a New Orleans police officer who's lived in New Orleans probably for the majority of his life and has been around individuals like this probably the majority of his life did not realize that this defendant was asking for an attorney. I find that incredibly hard to believe. And if they truly thought that Demesme was asking for a lawyer dog, I would want to question his sanity at that point and also need to stop questioning him. Because yeah, at that point, then you got to like bring in capacity and whatnot, and whether or not he has the ability to provide a statement or anything. Because if he really believes that dogs can practice law, I mean, that's a whole <laughs> different issue you got to bring in. Um, building off what Jessica was saying, that police officers not stopping their interrogation, Edwards v. Arizona says that if police officers do not stop, uh, in their interrogation. A suspect doesn't waive their rights when they continue to answer questions. And before we actually started recording this podcast, Arthur was doing some more research into this and found out that the public defender, I think, took on this case to represent Demesme. Arthur, why don't you tell us what was going on with that? So the, uh, the public defender for, for Orleans Parish, uh, Mr. Derwin Bunton, he took on the case and filed a motion to suppress the, the statements of the defendant. And uh, in his brief, he, he noted that police are legally bound to stop questioning anyone who asks for a lawyer, which most of us present here know if you've taken criminal procedure, um, once you've invoked that right, uh, questioning stops at that point. So um, the public defender continued saying that, well, the public defender said that under increased interrogation pressure, the accused invoked his right to an attorney and he stated it with emotion and frustration. So he, he feels that that should have also been taken into, taken into account as far as his request for uh, counsel. And I guess for you at home who are listening who haven't taken criminal procedure yet, uh, I'm assuming you've seen something along the lines of law and order and people have to read Miranda rights. Uh, one of those rights is the right to counsel, and if you invoke that right, all questioning has to stop. Anything you say after that point isn't actually admitted into a court unless you re-waive the right you just invoked. So that is why this is a big deal. And just taking a step back, how we got here in the first place was the, uh, the public defender filed the motion to suppress, and the statements... The public defender filed the motion to suppress the accused statements, and it was rejected by the trial court, the Court of Appeals, so he took it to the Louisiana State Supreme Court. And uh, the Supreme Court denied the appeal, and they did not issue a written ruling, which typically they tend to do, but uh, a brief concurrence was written uh, by just Justice Creighton, who wanted to quote, spotlight the very important constitutional issue regarding the invocation of counsel during a law enforcement interview. Keeping this in mind and in the same vein. Hello, I'd like to play a game with you. How this is going to work is I'm going to read a statement to the three of you 
and you tell me whether or not you believe it's an unequivocal and unambiguous request for counsel and why and and i'll tell you at the end whether or not you're right y'all ready ready all right here we go Sounds good to me after being questioned about a shooting an arrestee is re-advised of his miranda rights he told the officer that he was confused and he asked the officer can i call my lawyer or can my mom talk to you so do you think this is unequivocal and unambiguous I would say that it is ambiguous. Because he says, can I call my lawyer? He doesn't exactly say, I want one. Yeah, that's all I've got. Okay, Jessica, what do you think? I think he is asking to call his lawyer. He's been in a room in an interrogation type setting where you're not exactly sure if you can leave or not as an average citizen who respects law enforcement, you're going to maybe ask for permission. So he wanted to call his attorney. Okay. Jonathan, how about you? Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of in the same pocket as Miss Hawkins. He expressed that he was confused about his Miranda rights. And so, I mean, if you're confused to start with, you're not going to say anything with confidence. So him saying, can I call my attorney? I believe that's unambiguously him saying he wants an attorney. Okay. So really quick one-word answer. Should the police have stopped the interrogation? Zach, what do you Jessica. Absolutely. Okay, everybody says yes. Uh, This is from a real case, actually. It's from People v. Roquemore. It's a California case from the California Court of Appeal, 2005. What actually happened is the officer ended up terminating the interrogation, but not because of the nature of the accused question. It was because he felt like the questioning wasn't going anywhere. So he really didn't care that the guy even made that statement. He just felt like they were getting nowhere in the questioning, so he just terminated the interview. And for the record, Roquemore was not afforded an attorney. So I win. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Your prize is in the middle. I feel like that was a red herring. He's like, the answer is yes or no. Everyone say yes or no. Now that you've all said yes or no, the answer is it didn't matter. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's try another one. A murder suspect gives statements to the police during a custodial interrogation. And among the statements is... If for anything you guys are going to charge me, I want to talk to a public defender too for any little thing, end quote. Do you think this was unequivocal and unambiguous, Jessica? Yes. Why? He is asking to be afforded an attorney if they plan to charge him. Okay. Zach, what do you think? Definitely. He said, I want to talk to a public defender for any little thing, right? He said any little thing? Mm-hmm. So let, let me take it a step back before I move to Jonathan and ask him. I want to repeat the statement. Yeah, say it again. If for anything you guys are going to charge me, I want to talk to a public defender too for any little thing. Jonathan, what do you think? Well, I guess to play devil's advocate, I'd <laughs> say that he did not. Because if in the event the police, for any reason, weren't going to charge the murder suspect... Uh, then theoretically he wouldn't need an attorney. Okay. So I guess for if he was maybe like a co-conspirator or he had someone else with him when he murdered the individual he murdered and they for some reason wanted to charge the other guy and wanted to give him a deal and not charge him for murder, maybe you could swing it that way. It'd be kind of hard to do, but yeah, that's devil's advocate. <laughs> okay, so we got two yeses and a no. That's your final answer. Why not? All right. Do I become a millionaire? 
Um, again, this is from a real case, People v. Gonzalez. It's another case from California from 2005, same year. Uh, the court here found that this request was conditional and thus was not an unambiguous and unequivocal request for counsel that required the officers to stop the questioning. A reasonable officer would not have understood the suspect to be making an immediate request for counsel, and the police were not required to ask the suspect for clarification. So it looks like here the, the court kind of stuck to that if, mm-hmm. and they made it a conditional statement. But on that note, would a police officer also know what a conditional statement is? That's kind of Ooh. Uh, Ooh. <laughs> a shady, <laughs> shady statement there, Mr. Not, Harris. No, not shady. Well, a little shady, but not intended to be shady. But focusing on that if. It like, got real dark in California. That's how it shady did. It <laughs> but focusing on that if, would a police officer focus on that if? If I dangle my keys in front of you, then I want an attorney. So if I don't dangle my keys, then obviously I don't want an attorney. If I say, if you're going to charge me with something, a layperson would think that they're being charged with something if they're brought in. That's my, like, that's my line of reasoning. Or if you're not charging me, then I don't need the attorney. So no, don't bring him in. But if you are charging me and I'm in need of an attorney, then I want one. I mean, that you got to keep in mind that all police officers are trained in tactics that, like, make arrests and convictions a little more easy for the state. So we're thinking about, like, reasonable lay people, but these are, like, reasonable trained police officers who are trained in tactics to get, like, confessions or get, like, all kinds of statements out of these people they bring in. So I imagine that if if a suspect gives them any leeway at all to where they don't have to be like, oh yeah, that was totally unambiguous, they're going to take it in a heartbeat, as this case clearly represents. (laughs) Don't go to California. (laughs) Clearly. (laughs) But then again, this was from 2005, you know, times change. Slowly Prudence changes, you know. We mature, we become... Zach is not convinced. <laughs> Zach is not convinced. <laughs> Zach is not convinced. Not feeling it. What's our next one? All right, our next one. Now, this one's very short. Because all these have been super long. It's a very quick statement, but don't be tripped up by it. You ready? Ready. Here's the statement. Where is my lawyer? Do you think this is unequivocal and unambiguous? Why? <laughs> Any time to think. Jonathan. Any more time to I'll go first. You'll I've been go going last this whole time. So where's my lawyer? Uh, I'm going to say that probably is construed as unambiguous. No, as ambiguous. I'm okay. going to say that the police officer could just respond with, he's probably at his office or something ridiculous like that. So I don't think it's a, him invoking his right to an attorney. So you think it's more of a question of the location? Yeah, I think that's versus... how the, the police officer would interpret that. Yeah. Okay. Ms. Hawkins, what do you think? I think given, again, the high-pressure situation of being pulled into a police station and told that you've done something you believe you haven't done, any mention of where's my lawyer can I get a lawyer where just yes (laughs) okay let me read the statement one more time and give Zach a little more time to think about it thanks formulate the statement is where is my lawyer Justice Harrison do you think this was unequivocal and unambiguous so I think it there is ambiguity there 
like Jonathan said, where is my lawyer? Where is my attorney? Do you have an actually? Do you have an attorney to start with? It's not conditional like that second one, but if you don't have an attorney, then who knows where your attorney is? So I'm gonna say there's there's some ambiguity there, and he's not invoking his right. So is everybody saying no? No, I'm no, saying, saying he was. Saying absolutely. Saying yes. I'm saying yes. So you if, said the mere mention of the word lawyer. If he was read his Miranda rights, and they you have the right to an attorney. They start questioning him. He's like, wait, wait, wait. Where's my attorney? All right. But he didn't say wait. That's, I feel like wait would add some more to it and like kind of dissolve my, amb- the ambiguity that I'm feeling as Justice Harris and you butt. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he didn't say wait. He only said, where's, where's my, my attorney or where's my lawyer? Not, I'm not with it. Are y'all ready for the answer? Yeah. yeah. Drum roll. Well, again, this is from a real case, Matthews v. Maryland. It's a 1995 case. And what the court looked to was that a reasonable police officer could conclude that the statement merely reflected the suspect's curiosity concerning the location or appointment of his lawyer. And in their opinion, What I found interesting about this case was a little piece of the opinion, and um, it reads, when the officers reasonably do not know whether the suspect wants a lawyer, a rule requiring the immediate cessation of questioning would transform the Miranda safeguards into wholly irrational obstacles to legitimate police investigative activity. Of course, when a suspect makes an ambiguous or equivocal statement, it would be good police practice for the interviewing officers to clarify whether or not he actually wants an attorney, but we decline to adopt a rule requiring officers to ask clarifying questions. If the suspect's statement is not an unambiguous or unequivocal request for counsel, the officers have no obligation to stop questioning him. This is my favorite part. We are unwilling to create a third layer of prophylaxis to prevent police questioning when the suspect might want a lawyer. Unless the suspect actually requests an attorney, questioning may continue. Mm. What do you think about that, (laughs) I can tell in your face you have thoughts. (laughs) I just think... mm. (laughs) What do you think? I think that protecting people's rights, constitutional rights, should be more important than just police work or police investigation. I think the investigation can go on once people are more clear on not just what their rights are, but have a chance to speak to someone who can calm them down and bring them out of the crazed situation that being interrogated is. I agree. The American justice system says that we are innocent until proven guilty, but Realistically, we are guilty until proven innocent, especially if anyone's being interrogated or questioned by police. There is this large desire to put someone behind bars for a crime, even if it is sometimes the wrong person. And an officer's unwillingness to stop the investigation and clarify, like Arthur said, is not exactly what the goal is. The goal is to get someone for that crime so that justice is served, even though the rights of some individuals are sacrificed in that process. Yeah, I mean, it goes back to what I was saying earlier about police being trained specifically on, like, 
tactics to get arrests or to make convictions more um, easy and things along that that line. Like what he was like, what uh, Mr. President was saying that they don't have to ask clarifying questions. Uh, they don't have to ask anything at all if, unless you specifically request an attorney in clear, uncomplicated English. It seems the Queen's English. The Queen's English. They don't have to stop. They're just going to keep questioning you and interrogating you all day long. And they're never going to tell you again that you have the right to request an attorney because they've already read you the Miranda rights once, so they're good until they leave that room for an extended period of time and come back. That's but, the only way they'll have to read them again. But on the other hand, I mean, how, how much clearer can you be when you say, where is my lawyer? That sounds pretty damn clear to me. It sounds clear, but I mean, it's like with what attorneys do. Like, I mean, pick clearly, words I'm not, and you're like, oh, but what does this word really mean? Clearly, I'm not asking you literally where is he because you don't even know him. But if I'm asking, if you're questioning me and I say, where is my lawyer? I mean, do I have to whip out a code of criminal procedure book and read verbatim? What I should be saying to you? No. I mean... At this point, it seems like that is the case, yeah. As a product of Vice Chancellor Diamond, I'm going to say that words matter, Mr. Williams. <laughs> and... So do acronyms. Yeah. Oh, gosh. <laughs> so do the acronyms. And it seems that someone who is brought in has to be very clear and not ask questions and demand. Make, make a demanding statement. I want an attorney. I want a lawyer. Because where is my lawyer... Or, why don't you give me a lawyer, dog? Doesn't do it. Well, if you call someone dog, maybe that works. Like, why don't you give me a lawyer, comma, dog? <laughs> well, that didn't work here. Yeah, there was no comma. <laughs> I just think, well, my fear is that as trained professionals, police have the upper hand and should be more responsible in how they respond to people's requests and to make sure that even if their requests aren't granted, this right against self-incrimination is protected a little. Because you're right, I don't think people are truly innocent until proven guilty. Once you're brought in for questioning, the police are assuming that you either have something to do with it or know something that is going to lead them to the person who had something to do with it. I think that's a pretty good stopping point. I'd like to thank everybody for joining us this week for this episode of IREC. I would also like to thank our co-hosts uh, for joining us and providing their insightful opinions and analysis on this very timely and, and controversial topic. Uh, thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Today, I'm here with Layla Arifipour to talk about the Student Animal Legal Defense Fund. Hi, how are you? So could you tell us about your organization? So our organization seeks to advance the interests of animals through the law, and the National Animal Legal Defense Fund organization feels that if we can start with education through our law students, because animal law is, touches every area of law, and so as lawyers, it's gonna come across our desk at some point. So we just wanna educate law students about animal law. So what activities have you guys done here on campus? We did Speak Out for Farmed Animals Week, um, we, uh, which was a week where we talked about ag-gag laws and factory farming um, and the abuses that happen to animals 
um, in factory farms. Um, and then in the spring, we um, last spring we did National Justice for Animals Week, where we we focused on other areas of animal law, domesticated animal abuse, and um, testing in laboratories, um, and how it goes against the Animal Welfare Act um, and the Public Health uh, Services Act. Currently, we're also doing a drive for Yelp Baton Rouge, where people can bring uh, dog supplies, um, cleaning products, toys, food, bowls, things like that. So you took your passion for animal defense across the country this year. Can you talk to us about what you did at Lewis and Clark this summer? Yeah, I went to um, summer school at Lewis and Clark Law School in Portland, Oregon. Um, the law school um, has the Center for Animal Law Studies and they offer a summer animal law program. Um, I took uh, the first class with Stephen Weiss, who's the founder of the Non-Human Rights Project. Um, he taught the class, it was animal law and jurisprudence. Um, and then the second class that I took was taught um, by Dr. Paul Locke from Johns Hopkins University. Um, he taught the class about animal testing and, and ethics. And what internship did you complete this summer? Um, so this past summer, I worked with Animal Welfare Institute. I was their law legislative policy intern. I worked on issues that involved uh, wildlife. That's great. And could you tell the listeners about the Animal Law Conference? So the Animal Law Conference um, was held in Portland this past um, October. Um, I So I got a chance to go back to Portland. Um, the Animal Law Conference, there was numerous panels um, discussing various topics in animal law, um, aquatic animals, farmed animals, um, how animal law touches uh, domestic violence issues. Um, there was also, it was the first ever convention for law students that was part of the conference, which was wonderful and it was a really great networking opportunity. That sounds great, Layla. So if anybody wants to get in contact with Layla about the Student Animal Legal Defense Fund, you can reach her at Layla underscore Arifipur at SULC.edu. Thanks for being here, Layla. Thank you. Thank you for listening. This episode of IRAC featured music by Eric Zarr and bensound.com. I would also like to thank our executive producers, Jessica Hawkins, Arthur Williams, Jonathan Sanji, Kelly Chuku, Anyangu Jr., and Zachary Harrison.